KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Good morning, I'm Debbie Cruz. It's Wednesday, December 6th. A proposed initiative could make it easier to prosecute overdose deaths as homicides. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. Monica Montgomery Stepp was sworn in yesterday as the San Diego County Supervisor for District 4. She's the first black woman to serve on the County Board of Supervisors. After taking her oath of office, she paid tribute to Leon Williams, the first and only black man elected supervisor. Four decades have passed since the first black person was elected to serve our county. Together, we will be working to change a system that has long stood as a board that had forgotten about the voices and experiences of the people who make up this county. Montgomery Steps' election means Democrats once again have a majority on the Board of Supervisors. It's also the first time in history that a majority of the supervisors are women. The 2024 presidential primary election is only a few months away. The San Diego County Registrar's Office is reminding voters that their political party registration determines which presidential primary candidates they can vote for. If you are registered with a political party, you will only be able to vote for that party's presidential primary candidates. If you are registered as nonpartisan, independent, or no party preference, then you will have to select which primary you'd like to vote in. This year, the American Independent Party, Democratic Party, and Libertarian Party are allowing nonpartisan voters to vote in their primary. You can check your registration, re-register, and register to vote at stvote.com. SDSU is reducing its season ticket prices by 20% for next year's football season. Sales dropped by more than 5,000 tickets between 2022 and last season. The 2024 season tickets will cost anywhere from $200 up to $1,200. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu. A proposed ballot initiative could make it easier to prosecute overdose deaths as homicides. Reporter Katie Heisen looked into the possible effects. My daughter did not die of what was originally reported as an accidental overdose. My daughter was poisoned. That's Matthew Capaluto, who's behind the initiative. Four years ago, his 20-year-old daughter, Alexandra, was home in Temecula on Christmas break. He says she had stopped taking her prescribed medication for depression. Most people would never know she had these issues. She was a straight-A student, very quick-witted, and a good sense of humor. He didn't know she was seeking other ways to self-medicate. I got a call from my youngest daughter saying, Dad, get home. Alex is dead. Capaluto says she bought the painkiller Percocet from a dealer on Snapchat. But the pills were actually fentanyl. She took half of one before going to bed and never woke up. The dealer is serving a nine-year sentence. Capaluto says it's not enough. 
He proposed a law in her name. If someone is convicted of supplying hard drugs like fentanyl or cocaine, they could receive a warning saying, If they don't stop, and if someone dies as a result of their continued action, they can be charged with murder. Alexandra's law failed several times to pass through committee at the state legislature. So Capilouto is trying to get it on the ballot to let voters decide. This version also includes a mandatory minimum 10 to 12 year sentence for anyone who provides drugs that result in someone's death. I would rather fill our jails than our morgues. District attorneys can already prosecute these deaths as homicides, but this would make it easier. Capilouto says it mirrors a similar warning given for driving while intoxicated. Jeanette Zenapatine, a lawyer and director of California's Drug Policy Alliance, says the two can't be compared. We're setting ourselves uh, you know, with a slippery slope. She says the proposal doesn't meet the legal standard for homicide of intent. Suppliers and users often don't know exactly what's in their drugs. The best way to actually understand like what is in the dose is to allow for more drug checking. On a late November day in Chula Vista, Jess Cochran helps load San Diego's harm reduction RV with portable testing strips. Uh, as somebody with a pretty extensive lived history with substance use, I got really tired of watching my friends die um, from lack of resources. She's from Indiana, where supplying drugs that result in death is punishable with up to 40 years in prison. She says, and data shows, when neighborhood drug dealers are incarcerated, overdoses increase. It doesn't reduce the supply, but it does make it more dangerous. People aren't familiar with the new dealers or what they're selling. Cochran says harsher penalties also make users less likely to call for help when someone they're with overdoses. We're seeing even minors being charged, right? And these are kids that like got a Xanax bar and they gave it to a friend and they didn't know that it had fentanyl in it. And how are they supposed to? Right? Like, they're not superheroes. They can't, like, look at something and tell you what the molecular structure of it is. The RV pulls up behind a breakfast diner where more than a dozen people gather around tents and cars. What's your name? Led by name. Tara Stamos Bisig, the team hands out kits with everything from hand sanitizer and beanies to Narcan and pipes. Some use right in front of the RV, slumping to the ground. The team isn't phased. They're focused not on ending drug use, but on making it safer. She, he, she probably needs wound care, hygiene, all of it. Um. The clean needles and fentanyl test strips they hand out save lives for pennies each. Team member Jordan Parnes operates a drug testing machine in the back of the RV. He's put about 600 samples through it since September. He says if opioids are not from a pharmacy, they almost certainly contain fentanyl. I asked him to estimate how much it costs to run the harm reduction street outreach. More than incarcerating one person for a year and less than incarcerating two people for a year. <laughs> Under about $200,000. Though white and black people use and supply drugs at similar rates, black people are far more likely to be incarcerated for it. Under the decades-long war on drugs, overdose deaths have continued to climb. Stamos Bisig points to the 111,000 deaths each year. We are having the equivalent of a, uh, a 747 crashing every day in the United States um, of people overdosing. She says she and initiative proponent Matthew Capaluto have the same goal. She just doesn't think his approach will work. 
There, people aren't getting a solution in prison. That's not balancing any scale. There's no, this takes away from the number of deaths. Californians may see Capaluto's initiative on clipboards for their signatures. Capaluto says Congressman Daryl Issa plans to announce a federal version of the legislation on Friday. Katie Heisen, KPBS News. The county will not be implementing a new law next month that expands who can be involuntarily treated. Health reporter Matt Hoffman says county supervisors voted to delay the implementation of the law until as late as January 2025. This change, SB 43, I think as we've established, is a big deal. Before supervisors voted whether or not to delay SB 43, which would allow more people with severe substance abuse disorders to be involuntarily treated, San Diego County's Behavioral Health Services Director Luke Bergman told the board this expansion would be far-reaching. SB 43 will almost certainly result in many more folks being brought into emergency departments with similar presentations. But SB 43 comes with no new resources. That's a major concern for the county's hospital systems, which supported delaying implementation for up to a year. In a 3-2 vote, supervisors ultimately agreed with Chair Nora Vargas's proposal to have more time to develop how this expanded involuntary treatment will actually work. Our county team has never been afraid to implement smart policies or to address some tough issues. But I also insist that we've always been very careful and that we do things right and we do it well because we're talking about real people. Supervisors did agree to have staff report back in 90 days to assess if there's a possibility that this involuntary treatment expansion could happen sooner. Matt Hoffman, KPBS News. Coming up, we learn about Kumeyaay culture and how it's preserved. We'll have that just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. San Diego County has the most tribal governments and reservations in the country. That includes the Kumeyaay Nation, whose ancestral land San Diego sits on. Historically, the Kumeyaay were forced off their ancestral lands and their language and culture suppressed. Today, students, especially Native students, don't have an opportunity to learn about that history and heritage until college. That's when Professor Stan Rodriguez comes in. He's the director of Kumeyaay Community College, one of three tribal colleges in the state and chair of the Kumeyaay Studies Department of Cuyamaca College. He spoke with my colleague Jade Heinemann about his work on preserving and passing along Kumeyaay culture. Here's their conversation. It seems like there just aren't many opportunities for Native people to have a culturally relevant education at this point, like especially when K-12 through curriculum is dominated by white American narratives. Do you hope to see that change? I mean... 
You know what? I do hope to see that change. And you brought up an interesting point. In primary school, what do they showcase in grade fourth? The building of the missions. And if you really know the history of the missions, you know, our people have endured three waves of encroachment, the Spanish wave, the Mexican wave, and the American wave. When the Spaniards brought the missions, it was a weaponized form of indoctrination of Native people that were used to uh, house and sequester Native people, use them for servant or slave labor in building this, teaching rudimentary skills in anticipation of Spanish colonists coming. So when they, you know, build missions, what they're basically romanticizing the building of concentration camps. So one of the things that they do not teach is when the Spaniards first came to San Diego in 1769, our people attacked that first mission. Then when they moved it again in November 5th, 1775, hundreds of native warriors attacked that mission, burned it to the ground, and killed Father Jaime and two others. These things are not talked about. Another thing that's not talked about is during the Mexican era, the Cumias were almost successful in running the Mexicans completely out of San Diego. The last time, the refugees from San Diego were out at Point Loma waiting for a ship to take them away. So all these things were happening out here, and you, you never hear, them, hear about them in the history. I mean, what do you hear from students in the Kumeyaay Studies program or, or those taking a class for the very first time? Is, is this the first opportunity for a lot of them to learn about indigenous history, at least in the classroom? I am so glad you brought that up because it is. And many of them, well, most of them have never heard of these things happening before. And it's, it's, it's a shock for me. I tell them, this is historical. We are not making this up. It's just history that has not, you know, been publicized. So now we're giving this to you so that you can learn the whole whole thing. And we, we have some students who already have their degrees. We have students who are teachers, professors. We have doctors coming in, people who, who want to learn. We have high school students coming in who are, are taking courses at, uh, through Kumbia Community College where they get high school and college credit. And... We open it up to all, and the discussions that we have during the classes are very powerful and very inspiring. You also mentioned preserving the Kumeyaay language. Any sense of how many people speak the language now? Of approximately 4,632 Kumeyaay or Ipai, Tipai, Kumeyaay people who reside on both sides of the border because, you know, there's Kumeyaay in the United States and San Diego, and there's also Kumeyaay in Baja, California, Mexico. That border cut right through Kumeyaay territory. So of that, there's approximately 28 people who still speak the language. So under the UNESCO, nine factors of language stability and endangerment, five being stable, zero being extinct, the Kumeyaay language is listed as one, critically endangered. So one of the problems with that is because of diaspora of the nation, let's say, you're Kumeyaay from one of the communities in Baja, and I'm Kumeyaay from this community. If we are not in a place where we can communicate with each other, language atrophy takes place. Also, the younger people who do not know, they have very little opportunities to hear the language spoken in order to use the language. And sort of preserving the language and the culture, 
I want to know, you're also a mentor to many Native students. How are young people learning about Kumeyaay culture and language, and how are they working to preserve it? We see many people stepping forward to learn how to sing. Now that's making a renaissance. Same thing with language. I, I know this one young girl who was 11, 12 years old. She came to a language class. She was scared, frightened. She didn't want to do it. She came back again when she was 13. She was scared, frightened. She came back again when she was 16, and she stuck with it. And one of the beauties is being able to hear when, you know, we can sit down and talk for over an hour, and she's comfortable with it, and she has that. And she is a role model to others because you brought up something that's very important. For young people, I would be considered a fossil, Okay. But young people, when they have, how would you say, mentors or you know, people who are their own age, they become an inspiration to them. And they're the true ones that teach. Children learn better from other children. So these are things that we're working on, and we're also working on developing immersion programs. We started a pilot program where we were doing immersion eight hours a day, five days a week for one month. The terminal objective of this was upon successful completion, the participants would be able to communicate in the language for at least one hour without using, without using notes or anything. The first class, all of them were successful in doing that. The problem with it is, again, due to diaspora, if they're not in close proximity to each other, you start seeing language atrophy taking place very quickly. That was the director of Kumeyaay Community College and chair of the Kumeyaay Studies Department of Cuyamaca College, Stan Rodriguez, speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host, Jade Hindman. That's it for the podcast today. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. Join us again tomorrow for an update on what's going on in your community. I'm Debbie Cruz. Thanks for listening and have a great Wednesday. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.